So, uh, as Drew said, we are getting close to the end of John, um, and today we're picking up where uh, Alex left off last week. And for those of you who weren't here with us, we're right in John 20. So if you want to follow along, you can. There's a Bible in front of you. I believe we're on page 805, 806, somewhere in that vicinity, but the words will also be up here on the screen behind me. Um, I want to show you guys a a picture to start off with uh, this morning. Uh, Maybe not. Uh, (laughs) What I'm going to tell you about is uh, one of my favorite movies uh, uh, when I was a kid was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. How many of you guys saw that movie? A lot of you guys? Okay, great movie. Wonderful movie. Love Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, Indiana Jones is faced with this adventure in this situation near the end of the movie. And sorry, sorry if this is a spoiler alert, but I, I consider like Statue of Limitations, it's fair game to talk about. Um, you'll still enjoy it, even if you haven't seen it. So Indiana Jones has to save his father, and there's only one way to do that. He must find the, the cup of the Holy Grail and return from the fountain of life, uh, the water that will come from it. But he has to overcome a series, of, a series of obstacles in order to get there. And one of them is this incredible abyss, this chasm, this dark abyss and chasm that's between him and the other side, the side where the room of the Holy Grail lies. And he reaches this place, and it is literally just this step of faith that he's forced to take. This step of faith. Um, And we all reach those moments in our life. We all reach those moments even every single day. Not necessarily like Indiana Jones where we're going to have to step off an abyss. But there's a moment where our beliefs, what we believe to be true, must be acted out. They must be demonstrated. It goes from being a cognitive belief, something that we can agree with, to something we need to demonstrate and live out with our life. In, In short, we need to put skin in the game. We need to put something on the line. Um, years ago, I had the opportunity to go rappelling with some friends in Colorado, and I don't like heights. Um, I'm not a fan of them, not uh, excited about them, or anything like that, um, and especially the idea of falling. I don't like falling, don't want to have that be uh, what's written on my tombstone, guy fell off a perfectly good ledge uh, doing an activity he didn't need to do. Uh, but anyways, I w- had all sorts of friends, and they, they goaded me into rappelling, and they talked to me about the safety of all the equipment. They, they began to explain to me the statistics. They began explaining to me the odds of, you know, something bad happening, which, which really didn't help. The statistics didn't help. The, looking at the equipment didn't help a ton because there still had to be a moment where I had to lower myself over the ledge. I had to put into action what I believed to be true and what they were telling me. And there were moments of doubt along the way. There were moments of suspicion. There were moments of, can I really trust this? And see, I think in every single one of our lives, doubt is a real issue. We all have doubts. Every single one of you, and you walked in here this morning, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're not, you wrestle with doubts. Uh, I, know, I know I do. I, I know that there's mornings where I wake up, especially a morning, morning like this, and I ask myself, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, can you really be trusted? God, are you really good? God, will you show up? God, will you provide? God, what about A, B, and C? These moments of doubt, and even if you're a believer, we tend to forget and doubt the goodness of God, that God cares for us, that God's reliable, and that God can be counted on. See, faith, faith, what it means to follow Jesus, what it really means to trust Jesus, is not necessarily that you have complete certainty, but you're willing to walk and take the next step in light of who you know God to be. Hebrews 11.1 says this, that faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. 
And this is much of how we live life. We live our life by faith, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. There are moments in which you must take a leap of faith. I mean, you don't get a promise when you graduate from college exactly how your life's going to go. Instead, you begin making decisions and you live out beliefs. You don't get a promise even when you get married, per se, of exactly how that relationship will go. In fact, you're trusting that other person. It's an act of faith. You don't get a promise in exactly how your kids will turn out. The whole endeavor, the whole investment, all of your heart, all of your care, all of your concern for your kids is an investment. It's an act of faith. We live by faith. We all live by faith. Even those who don't follow Jesus live by faith. Certainty. Certainty is one of those things that I think we so deeply desire, but in reality, certainty is much more for engineering and airplanes than it is for relationships. Let me explain that a little bit. With an airplane, you want to be as certain as possible because you can mechanically figure out, okay, do we have the best chance possible that this airplane will fly and it will ride right and it's safe for us to occupy? Or when we look at our technology, our cars, we can have a certain understanding and confidence that this will perform in the way we want. But the thing about relationships, the thing about true relationships is there has to be an element of risk. I have to be willing to trust you. I have to be willing to say, I don't need a nanny cam, I don't need a body cam on you at every moment, but there's a dynamic trust in you and who you are and your character and your nature and your very being. And so we begin to live by faith. Even the non-believer, even the atheist, I love how Bertrand Russell put it, he said that he lives by a certain amount of faith. He lives by a belief. In fact, this is what he said. He said, the universe is nothing but an accidental pile of stuff jostling around with no rhyme or reason, and all life on earth is but a teeny inconsequential speck of nothing in the corner of space. That sounds heartening, right? Put that on a Hallmark card. But that was his belief, and he lived by that belief. Could he 100% prove that? Could he demonstrate that? Absolutely. No. He was living by faith that there wasn't anything greater, that there wasn't a more noble purpose, that this universe did not have much meaning or significance. That was him living by faith. And so we encounter an incredible passage today. Jesus has risen from the dead and he begins to appear to his disciples and to make himself known. And really, we see this juxtaposition. We see this contrast, this interplay between faith and doubt, belief and doubt, all throughout our passage. So let's begin to look at it. You can follow along and see with me in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, this is really important, on the evening of the first day of the week. So what this means is this has been, this has been uh, an entire day since, since Jesus has risen from the dead. He, he rose that morning and he waited to the evening to begin to appear to the disciples. So it's a number of hours. They probably heard murmurings from Mary of Magdalene who already saw Jesus. And they're hearing and they're wondering. There's probably a level of rumor and excitement and anticipation Almost like if you read the Chronicles of Narnia books where you'd hear about Aslan being on the move. I think of it like that. Like Jesus is on the move. Jesus could be returning. And when the disciples were together with the doors locked, that's important, the doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. The disciples, you got to remember, these guys doubted greatly. They had immense doubt. So much so that when they saw the Jewish leaders come and arrest Jesus, what did they do? They fled. 
They fled. Because here's the thing about doubt. Doubt is always really asking two questions, two primary questions. Is it true and is it worth it? Is it true and is it worth it? Those are the buckets of doubt. Almost all doubts can go into those buckets. And as the disciples watch Jesus get arrested, they're beginning to ask themselves, is it true? Is Jesus true? Is his message true? Is what he told us really true? And is it worth it? We're beginning to see persecution. We're beginning to see arrests. We know how this is going to play out. We know what's in store for Jesus. And is it really worth it? And you and I ask the same questions all the time. Okay, did Jesus really die? Can we trust the Bible? Do we really have enough information about Jesus? Did he really rise from the dead? Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? There's all sorts of questions that people ask. But here's the questions that I think really get to the core of our doubts often. Is it worth it? What what did Jesus say over and over and over again? Count the costs, count the costs, count the costs. And inside of our souls, inside of our ambitions, inside of our desires, because you and I are worshiping beings that often, rather than choosing to worship the creator, we worship something in the creation. We point to something in this world that we think will bring us meaning and satisfaction and deeper joy. And the message of the gospel and the authority of Jesus might conflict with that. We begin to ask, is it worth it? In many of the conversations that I have with folks that are curious about Jesus, often they run into a place eventually where following Jesus will force them to ask the question, what am I going to have to give up? What will I have to repent of? What will I have to walk away from? Think of Jesus with the rich young ruler. He ran into a moment where this guy came up to him, super self-righteous, and told Jesus he was the best moral dude around, and he had all sorts of good deeds, and Jesus got to the core issue with him. Give all your stuff away and go serve the poor. Not worth it. Not worth it. Began to doubt. So is it true? Is it worth it? Is it true? Is it worth it? That's what we always see inside of our own hearts, inside of our own lives. When Jesus, when we come to something in the Bible, he makes an imposition, when he imposes upon our free time, our resources, our liberties, we begin to ask, is it really worth it? That's often the defining question for people when they consider the message and the reality and the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus shows up. Jesus came and he stood among them. Peace be with you. Remember the door's locked. So Jesus is almost pulling a Casper the Friendly Ghost. Just comes right on in. Doesn't knock. Comes through a locked door. And he says, peace be with you. Peace. Peace be with you. Now this seems like a really strange thing to say. I'm sure the disciples, they're quite terrorized. They're worried about the Jewish leaders attacking them. And all of a sudden they're seeing a guy who they thought was dead. And he appeared right through a locked door. Stunning. And his message of peace, this is the the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom. So he's not just saying absence of violence. What he's saying to them is peace. What he's saying is, I want you guys to have a full, rich, complete understanding of what it means for me to be standing here before you. That the peace, the peace that you want, the peace that you're so desperately craving to know that you're comforted, to know that you're safe, to know that you're loved, will be found in the very fact that I have risen from the dead. The peace that you and I are looking for is found in the resurrected Christ the same way it was for those disciples who were standing in a locked room. This was finally something that Jesus said with an exclamation point. The peace that you need, the peace that I need, the peace that I so desperately want is with you. Don't miss the subtle meaning that's going on here. The peace that they, they need is, is with them, God with them. What an incredible invitation, what an incredible reality. Jesus is demonstrating his perfect love and sacrifice that he accomplished on the cross. Verse 20, after he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed 
that they had saw the Lord. Can you imagine the joy, the excitement that the disciples were feeling? I, I can't. To honestly watch a guy get crucified and then to be able to see the marks in his wrists and the nail marks in his feet and the spear mark in his side. To see him standing before you. What did Jesus say in John 16? He often said the very nature of the gospel, the very nature of what God does more than anything else, and it's, it's really the story of redemption, is that he takes the most jacked up, messy, awful, unbelievable situations, and he brings joy out of them. God takes crooked lines and he makes them straight over and over and over again. God takes crooked people. God takes broken hearts and he makes them new. He transforms them. He restores them. This is the joy of the gospel when things seem hopeless, when things seem pointless, when things seem completely broken. Jesus restores them. Jesus makes them new. He turns grief to joy. And he's the only one that's ever been able to do that. He's the only one that makes things new, that makes them better, that brings peace. Verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus is saying, this peace, this peace that is now with you, me in the flesh, you've seen that have risen from the dead. The Father has sent me to accomplish that very thing. What was Jesus sent for? Jesus was sent to die for the sins of of this broken world to restore and to provide redemption. And then the disciples get this incredible privilege, not this burden or obligation that we sometimes think of it to tell people about Jesus and to share the good news, but it's a privilege, it's a joy that they then get to live a life that matters and counts in telling people this extraordinary good news, this good news of redemption. And that's the best thing about good news. When you have good news, how many people do you begin to call and talk to about it? I mean, when you have a graduation, I know we have some folks in here that graduated yesterday. You don't just say, well, I'm going to my graduation ceremony, just me, and uh, maybe I'll blog about it in six months. No, you want all of your family and friends there with you. Some of you, you're going to be getting married here soon. And I know for you, you're not like, man, we're just going to go elope maybe in Las Vegas. Although you could. Uh, lots of people do. 300 people a day. Um, it's weird. I know I'm from Las Vegas, so that's why I know that. Um, <laughs> But you want as many family and friends with you because there's one response to good news, and that's the sharing of it. We love to share good news. And so Jesus invites them. He gives them a, a purpose and a mission to share this good news. And he breathed, and, and, and verse 22, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is actually a foreshadowing of what will happen for God's people at Pentecost six weeks later. Disciples are seeing a, an early preview of sorts of Jesus saying, get ready. You guys haven't seen nothing yet. I know you're impressed that I'm standing here. I know you love seeing the wounds in my hands and that they've been healed. But the Holy Spirit's coming. And sometimes you and I, we can be a little frustrated and wonder, like, man, I'd really just love to see Jesus. But the Bible actually tells us that those of us with the Holy Spirit are even more blessed than those who got to see Jesus. That the Holy Spirit's actually greater because the Holy Spirit comes in my life, comes in your life, and takes residence inside of us. And as the Holy Spirit takes residence inside of us, it slowly evicts sin and decay and destruction and depravity. It gives us a new heart and a new nature and a new life and a new ability to live out the fruit of the Spirit. 
as we grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. That's what the Spirit does. And Jesus says this Spirit will then enable you to live out the very mission that you're being handed. And this is seen in verse 23. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What Jesus is honestly just saying here, it's, it's, it's actually pretty simple. It sounds a little harsh, but what he's really saying is, you're going to preach the gospel. And some people are going to respond, and they're going to hear it as great news. Their hearts are going to be set free. They're going to love hearing the message of redemption. They're going to love hearing the work that I accomplished on the cross, and they're going to be set free. And others will resist. Others will hear this as horrible news. Others will stand in opposition, and they will remain in their sins. But you and I, that's not our responsibility to worry necessarily about the outcome. Our responsibility is to share the good news, to love people, to care for people, to serve people, to be kind to people, to extend this good news to people in every opportunity that we have. Here's the weird thing, though. So as we look at verse 24, Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't there. I don't know. Maybe he went out to get some sandwiches for everyone. It had been a long day. Maybe he was getting Chick-fil-A. Um, it's tasty if they had it. He probably went to Chick-fil-A. But he wasn't there. And you got to imagine, that's got to feel like one of those all-time wish-you-were-there type moments, right? Like Thomas comes back, and the room is filled with joy and elation and excitement. And Thomas is told, hey, guess what? Jesus was here, and you missed him. That's got to be a major, major bummer. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now you got to imagine, if you're Thomas, this sounds like an incredibly off-the-wall type claim. Thomas is like, I know Jesus got crucified, and people tend not to survive that. Like, I'm just doing the math. It tends not to go well. So dead is dead. I believe he's dead. And they're saying, no, no, we've seen him. He's alive. He's been resurrected, brought back from the dead. And Thomas, once again, doubt. Doubt goes in those two buckets. Is it true? Is it worth it? Is it true? Is it worth it? And I think Thomas has gone through an incredibly traumatic, horrific experience. When you've seen someone you love and walked with for three years be crucified, that's got to be devastating. He's got to be having this moment of incredible trauma, of sorrow, of almost mourning, and I don't know if you've been there, but in those moments when you're mourning and filled with sorrow and even in depression, have any of you guys ever been in that moment, that pit? You will be. That's part of what it means sometimes to walk in this life. You will have those moments where you're in the valley, when you're in the pit. It's hard to hear good news. It's hard to hear about the love of God. It's hard to hear that this might end. In fact, sometimes when we're suffering, it feels like our suffering is the end of the story and it will last forever. And I imagine that was a lot like what Thomas was going through. And so Thomas responds, and he, he becomes quite the empiricist. I'll define that here in a moment. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Thomas is not going to take any chances. He's not going to be hoodwinked. He's not going to buy in. He's not getting his hopes up. He's not falling for any infomercials. He's not buying anything from late night TV. Thomas is not going down that road. He says, uh-uh, not me. Too smart for that. In fact, I mean, if Thomas was around today, we might look at him and go like, you know what? That's a good guy. He's pretty skeptical. He's a little cynical. He's very smart, very intelligent. Good for Thomas. 
It's interesting, though, in verse 24, and John does this twice, it tells us that his, his Greek name is Didymus. Didymus. Didymus means twin. Twin. So Thomas likely had a twin, but you also have to understand in the ancient world, being a twin was actually usually seen as a cursed thing. Uh, infant mortality rates went up, so moms weren't as happy to have twins. It messed up inheritance issues. There wasn't like a firstborn son, but now we had to figure out how do we divide the property by two. No one wants to do that. Messes up deals and contracts and marriages and all sorts of stuff like that. But the bigger implication, and often the word that's associated with twin, is to be double-minded. To have two different ambitions or agendas. I think that's interesting. I think that's what John's wanting us to see about Thomas, is he represents this tension that all of us feel to some degree of being double-minded between the loves and the desires and the thought processes of the world and what it looks like to live by faith and follow Jesus. See, we live in a world that's gotten incredibly comfortable with believing that all knowledge, all true knowledge, comes solely through the scientific method. The scientific method is not bad, but there's all sorts of things that you and I live by, know to be true, that can't be proved by the scientific method alone. In fact, the scientific method in and of itself can't be verified by the scientific method. You ever thought about that? Or love. Love can't be proven by the scientific method. But yet, it's this base conviction that we all live with. How about justice? How much does justice weigh? I don't know. But I believe it to be true. Right, wrong, good, evil, meaning, value. I mean, as I said, I'll do a wedding next weekend and... I guarantee you when that bride walks down the aisle, the guy who's standing next to me, he's not going to be thinking to himself, man, what a beautiful bag of molecules. I'm so, so happy right now. There's a physiological reaction going on inside my head, and this was predetermined by all the chemistry that's been going on and taking place and all the environmental situations and circumstances of determinism. That's not what he'll be thinking. He'll be thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This girl actually is going to marry me, and she's incredibly beautiful. I'm so lucky. I'm blessed. This is amazing. I'm so glad I get to give my life to her, and she's going to give her life to me, and we will become one. All of these, though, are beliefs, beliefs that necessarily can't be proven empirically, but we know to be true. See, a lot of this is the product of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment was in some ways a, a failure to understand what people really are. It made us think that all the things that we could really trust, it started with Rene Descartes, and his statement of, I think, therefore I am. And for him, it was the notion that I am a thinking thing. I'm a brain on a stick. And if I can get all my thoughts right, if I can have all my logical proofs, if I can have all the right information, then everything will snap into focus and I'll finally understand things. But it's a complete failure to understand what people really are, especially even according to what the Bible says. The Bible teaches us altogether something different. The Bible teaches us that we're not primarily just thinking things, but we're a mind, we're a body, we're a soul, and we're a spirit. And what that means is that you and I, we were made to worship, we were made to love things, we were made to desire things. And you go through your life not just logically evaluating things, but deciding what you're going to love and give yourself to. You are a worshiping being. It's almost as if you are a worship light switch and it's been stuck in the on position. You can't help but worship. You're made to worship and you will worship. The question is, what will you worship? And so Thomas, Thomas kind of pushes through this doubt. And doubt's not bad. I want to be very careful about saying that. In fact, doubt can be really good. Doubt can help us clarify, hone in, and more deeply understand what we honestly believe. Jesus, what did he say in John that we read earlier? I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This was one of the most revelatory and life-changing verses when I first became a Christian. I was in college at the time, and the reason it was such good news for me is because it made me realize that in order to follow Jesus, I didn't need to shut off my brain. I didn't need to avoid the hard questions. I didn't need to be afraid of finding out new information. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm the truth. And what that means is you can follow the truth. And there will be coherence with the message of the gospel. That is, you understand history and our world and science and technology, this tension, this supposed opposition between science and faith doesn't exist at all. But rather, they're at times even just asking different questions of how something works and why it was made. C.S. Lewis says this, If ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. But if doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what was clearly not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith has grown stronger. It, know, it knows God more certainty, certainly, and it can enjoy and love God more deeply. It can enjoy and love God more deeply. So there are moments, and I know some of you walk into this room this morning, and you have doubts, and I would say this is a safe place for you to wrestle with them. I'm glad you're here, and Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. In fact, your doubts don't count you out. That's the good news of the, what we see in Thomas as well. Was Thomas thrown out for his doubts? No, he wasn't thrown out for his doubts. Your doubts don't count you out. Rather, your doubts are to be investigated and considered and press into them and take them to the Lord and study and ask good questions and lean into community. I want to look at two quick reasons for our doubts. And as I said, there's that, is it worth it? Is it true? But one of them, I think, that, 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 that drives a lot of our doubt is even just this sense of, of fear, of sorrow, of regret. Um, behind every cynical person, there is a burnt-out idealist, someone who had a great notion about love and maybe lost, someone who really trusted and was let down. Someone who was willing to give themselves and was abandoned. Someone who joined up and found it to be a fraud. And so what becomes the safe position, or at least feels like it emotionally, is to withdraw and to fold our arms and to look at everything with suspicion. Are those people genuine? Is that church legit? Can I trust those people? Should I put myself out there again? And it becomes easier, and in some ways we almost think it's more sophisticated to be the cynic who can supposedly see through everything. But as C.S. Lewis says about the cynic, you eventually, if you try to see through everything, you end up seeing nothing. And so the cynic spends all of their life on the sideline rather than engaged, spends all of their time critiquing rather than building up, and spends all of their life trying to deconstruct rather than make an impact. The invitation, the invitation that Jesus has to the cynic is to come and see. Come and see. Come understand. And the second, the second reason I think we see for our doubts even more specifically within the is it worth it is that inside in every single one of us is a rebellious heart. We're rebels. We've run far from God. We've looked at God and said, I think I know better. I think I know how to make my life more happy. I think I know what will bring me joy. And we run. 
C.S. Lewis said that before he became a Christian, it wasn't just that he didn't think it to be true, he didn't want it to be true. He had a vested interest in not believing because he realized the implications that if he did believe, if Jesus was who he said he was, then this would mean he would become the grand interferer, as he called him, in C.S. Lewis's life and affairs and personal effects. It's fascinating to think about that. Every single one of us is able to put together the reasoning and the rationale that if there is a God, if Jesus is who he says he is, then his claims aren't just to be our Savior, but to also be our Lord. That can be stunning. Verse 26. uh, It's already up there. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So Thomas isn't missing this time. Key part of the story. The door's locked, though. They do like to keep their doors locked at night. The door's locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I love it. Jesus has just one message. Focus on my peace. Realize in some ways that I literally am saying I am the peace. I am the shalom, and I'm with you. And then he said to Thomas, could you imagine Thomas? Thomas probably turned white as a ghost. And he was completely horrified because for the last seven days, all he's been hearing about was Did you see Jesus? No? Okay. Are you still going to hold out? Are you still not going to believe? Are you still not going to come around? And so he's just been hearing that, and he's probably been festering. It's probably been bothering him, and it's just been irritating and annoying. And so Jesus comes, and he shows up again, and he looks right at Thomas. He says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop, stop doubting and believe. I love that what Jesus offers up as evidence to Thomas isn't necessarily a thesis or a proof or a survey class from college on world history, but instead he shows him his wounds. One of the things that's most compelling to me and I think interesting about the, the, the Christian faith is that our God has wounds. I know of no other religion where the God they worship has wounds. And so for you, for me, for us who live in a broken world, knowing that we have a God that can identify with our suffering, who can understand our wounds and can enter into those places along with us, has to be incredibly comforting. He's relatable, he's understandable, and he also wants to be near. And so he shows Thomas his wounds. He doesn't necessarily chastise Thomas. Do you notice that? He doesn't break down Thomas. He doesn't give him a lecture and see, and and no one does the, see, I told you so, How could you be so stupid? Why did you get it wrong? There's none of that. Instead, there's grace-filled compassion for Thomas. Thomas is restored. Thomas is shown Jesus. See, I think for you and I, our our longing, and and it's inside every single one of us, our longing for absolute certainty is is never going to be met. As much as we go through life and we try to get as much money as we can so we can be safe and secure, I mean, and these are all good things, retirement, IRAs, Ross, like having good, making a good amount of money, all good things. But underneath a lot of that can sometimes be this idol, can be this need that if I just have enough stuff, if I just have enough money, then I can avoid any obstacle or trial that life will throw my way. Or for some, maybe the tension, maybe the issue is, is I need to have complete certainty in all of my relationships, and that leads us to want to be incredibly controlling. 
that we want to manage other people's affairs, that we want to make sure our kids turn out perfect, and it seems like every day we live with incredible angst and stress, not knowing what's going to happen next. We want certainty. Thomas wanted certainty. But God offers us something so much better. And this is, this is the only thing that I think sometimes we, we miss. And even as followers of Jesus, we, we miss this. The God of the universe, why would, why would he not reveal himself to you and I in the flesh like we would want? Why? Well, think about this for a second. There's got to be some space for us to have to trust him. There's got to be some space. There has to be some opportunity for you and I to grow in our muscles of faith, that we're stretched, that our relationship with Jesus, that our relationship with God can truly have some stakes within it. I mean, I I just imagine if I kept my kids in bubble wrap and never let them go out and explore and figure out the world around them, it would seem a lot less risky, but they're not going to grow. They're not going to develop. And our relationship would be stunted because of that. So Jesus sends us out, and we walk by faith. And often that faith, that faith is just a shoestring, but that's okay. That's totally okay. And plus, on top of that, too, if we had complete certainty, if we had complete certainty, that would put God in a box on this side of heaven. You guys ever seen that movie? It was made a long time ago called The, the Stepford, Stepford Wives. It was, it was weird, but it was, it was this notion almost of like, if you could, these guys, I guess, they, they, they had these wives that were completely kind and nice and never talked back and made great dinners and the pot roast always tasted awesome and everything was perfect. And it was the notion in some ways of what if our relationships were absolutely perfect and we found someone that was a Stepford wife or a Stepford husband or Stepford friends, always behaved and did exactly what we wanted. As the movie kind of shows, you wouldn't have a relationship, you would have a, a robot. That relationships are dynamic, that they're always changing, that they're always shifting, and the stakes, the events, and the adventures, the trust is where all the good stuff lies. It's where all the tension truly is. And so Thomas, Thomas realizes this, and what does he do? His doubt, his doubt goes from complete despair, and it turns into worship. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. This is the strongest declaration in the entire Gospel of John that we've seen to the divinity and the nature of Jesus Christ. It's a perfect culmination of the entire book of the Bible because we started in John 1 where it says the Word became flesh, talking about who Jesus was. And for 20 chapters, we've seen Jesus slowly being revealed. And Thomas gets the very apex culminating moment in saying, you are my God. You're God. That's who you are. Everyone's missed it. They haven't seen it. And my doubt has gone to worship. It's gone to adoration. And what turned Thomas's doubt to adoration? What did? Seeing Jesus clearly. Seeing Jesus for who he really is. This is why Jesus is so focused on his glory. He wants you and I to also see him for who he is. Because when we do, it leads us to worship. And what we worship begins to define us. And as you worship Jesus, you become more conformed into his image, you become more like him, and you become closer to him. 
That's why Christianity, following Jesus, will never be about rules. It just can't be. That's the Stepford God thing. That's God in a box. But it's relational. It's dynamic. It's an act of worship. Because as you worship, what you worship will be to your ruin or to your restoration. What you worship will be to your ruin or your restoration. I want to be sensitive for those of you who are hearing what I'm saying and you still feel like, okay, I, that feels like a million miles away. I, I have all sorts of doubts. The God thing, the church thing, all that just seems confusing to me. There is a, there's a measure in which we have to come to realize and be people that it's not so much about how much faith we have, but it's what our faith is in. It's not how much faith we have, but it's who our faith is in. Um, in, in Canada, I, I've never played ice hockey, but, you know, I've heard the saying before, like thin ice. Like you skate on thin ice, and I guess, you know, you fall in. It's pretty easy to figure out. So, you know, you want to be on thicker ice. Here's the thing about that. Um, having really strong confidence that the thin ice will hold you up won't do you any good. If you had a lot of faith that I'll skate on this really thin one-inch piece of ice, it, w- it's, it wouldn't hold you up, no matter how much confidence and faith you had in it. But if you get out to the strong ice, if you get out to where the ice is two, three, four feet thick, even if you had no confidence whatsoever, whatsoever even if you were completely mistrusting, even if you were a doubter, it wouldn't matter. Because it wouldn't be about your faith, it'd be about the object of your faith. And it wouldn't even necessarily be about what you just believed in your head, but it'd be what you demonstrated with your actions by going out to that thick ice. And so the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is it's not about even the quantity or the quality of your faith, but it's who your faith is in. Where do you put your faith? Where does your faith rest? It's your faith in Jesus Christ the one and only true God, the revelatory God who's with us, who's been wounded for us, and by his wounds we've been healed, and because of his wounds we have peace, peace with God. And even if our faith is small, it doesn't matter because it's who our faith is in. That's what Jesus says in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and not yet believed. You and I, we haven't seen, but yet we can believe, we can trust. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole book of John, the whole book of John, has been about you believing in the real Jesus, the true Jesus. All of his works, all of his miracles, all that we've seen. John 2, where Jesus turns water into wine. John 4, where Jesus heals the royal official's son. John 5, where Jesus heals the paralyzed man at the Bethsaida pool. John 6, where Jesus feeds 5,000. 
John 9, where Jesus heals a blind man. John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And John 19, where Jesus is crucified. And John 20, where Jesus resurrects from the dead. All of these are signs. They're pointing. They're wanting us to see clearly. They're wanting us to understand who we should put our faith in, who we should believe in. And this belief, this understanding can't be like, man, I I really believe that um, the Seahawks are going to have a great 2016 football season. It can't be that type of belief. There has to be some action on it. It has to be as if you were going to empty out your bank account and put all your money on that belief. You've got to go all in. You've got to push to the center of the table everything you have. You've got to give your entire life. It has to be a confidence that you're willing to demonstrate. It has to be followed by action. That's what it means to believe. The same word for belief is the same Greek word for trust. What do you put your trust in? This morning, what is your trust in? Is your trust in your own righteousness, in your accomplishments, in your intelligence, all the things that can betray you, that will let you down and eventually decay? Or is it in the finished work of Jesus Christ who offers you eternal life and will glorify you, who will resurrect you one day, who's taking heaven and he's rupturing it down into this world? That's what it means when we pray on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, God, take heaven and bring it down here. That's what this whole thing is about. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. Jesus is the down payment of that. Jesus is the indicator that God will keep his word, that he'll fulfill his promise, that he'll redeem this world, that he'll fix you and I, and that he offers eternal life and peace and shalom. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what we need to see, and this needs to change everything about us. Church, we need to be people that believe because of what we've seen and what we've heard, and what we know to be true. And that, as you and I, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, we gaze into the face of Jesus Christ, and we're changed from one degree of glory to the next. As we behold, as we worship, as we give our lives away, we'll see God do an incredible work here in Seattle, and in our lives, and our communities. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the message of redemption, and this is what our world needs more than anything else.